are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thank you, Jeff, for reading scripture for us. Thanks, too, for getting us into the Gospel of Luke as we start this brand new series today. The kids are back to school, and so we thought it would be great for us to head back to the Gospels and to learn from Jesus this season. I want to thank you for a wonderful, unpredictable summer where we were online and outdoors for worship. It just was a memorable season. And certainly to study Elijah and Elisha in the early part of the summer, and then just recently having finished First Peter. Such a great study in Scripture. So thank you for being there with us. This fall, we're in Scripture under the heading, The Doctor is In, Discipleship in Luke. Some of you know Luke's background, maybe, in your own Bible study. You know that he was a medical doctor, kind of a unique trait about Luke. The Apostle Paul specifically mentions this in Colossians, is where we have that named. We know that Dr. Luke spent significant time with the Apostle Paul, traveling about with him and as a leader in the early church. We see Luke's name appear not just in Colossians, but he also comes up in Philemon and 2 Timothy. And then in the book of Acts, we see that Luke traveled on different occasions with the Apostle Paul. 
I'm reminded as we think about Luke this first week, that the Lord gifts and uses all kinds of people for his purposes. Fishermen, tax collectors, tent makers, a businesswoman named Lydia, a shepherd boy named David. And I loved seeing the back to school photos that uh, many parents shared this week, you know, often with the sign that says grade, school, teacher, and sometimes says, you know, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I love seeing those. And I want to ask you the question this morning, can God use a horse trainer? Can God use a baseball player, a professional hockey player? Can God use an astronaut? Can he use a veterinarian or a wildlife biologist? You bet he can. You bet he can. And here he uses a physician. And we see in scripture how God gifted Luke with this sharp intellect and an investigative spirit and attention to detail so that he wrote the largest single portion of the entire New Testament. It was Luke. I mean, you know, my first knee-jerk reaction would be the Apostle Paul wrote the most, and Paul wrote the most books in the New Testament. But when you look at volume and sheer word count, it is far and away Luke and his two-volume set of Luke and Acts. So we're coming this fall to study in the Gospel of Luke. We're saying the doctor is in, and we're ready to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And that's really what discipleship is about. How can I become more like Christ this season? I want to know him, to follow his ways, and to do with my life what he would like me to do. Isn't that our heartbeat as followers of Jesus? That's what it comes down to. And and we begin today in our first passage in the book of Luke. I'm excited for this series, especially because we're going to focus on stories that appear only in Luke. So you won't find the passages we're going to study in Matthew, Mark, or John. And one of the main reasons that this happens is due to the nature of eyewitness accounts. I want you to imagine that you're outside in the front yard or out on the front patio of your home, just enjoying the fall weather, and there's a traffic accident on the street where you live, and you see this whole thing happen. Let's just say it's a fender bender at an intersection, and nobody is hurt. But there's two vehicles that are all banged up and, you know, makes a huge amount of noise when the accident happens, and so the police come to sort out the scene. Now, thankfully, there are some eyewitnesses who saw the accident happen. One of them called 911. A couple eyewitnesses hurried to the scene to make sure that nobody was hurt and to help out. And so the police officer arrives with his notepad, and he's going to talk to the eyewitnesses about exactly what happened and then take down their testimony. Of course, he probably starts with the drivers of the two vehicles. So he's going to go to the one and say, sir, can you tell me what happened? And the guy explains, and the officer's writing down the story. Then he goes to the other driver and says, ma'am, from your vantage point, can you share with me what happened? And she explains and he writes down the story. Then he comes to you because you were on your front patio or out in your front yard and you witnessed this event. And so you tell him what you saw. And then after hearing from you, he actually goes to the mailman who was coming down the other street delivering mail when this accident happened right in front of him. And then there's another witness who's another neighbor of yours, but a few houses down, 
who was outside taking his garbage cans down to the curb when the accident happened. So all of these accounts go to corroborate the one single event that took place. And of course, as we think of the Gospels, there's lots of overlap in the Gospels, but there's also going to be then these details that are unique to that vantage point, to that eyewitness. So back to our analogy, from where you were sitting outside, you saw that the white car hit the blue car. But what you didn't see that your neighbor saw from three houses down was that there was this squirrel that ran out in the street in front of the white car, causing the driver to swerve. And what the mailman saw that nobody else saw is that the guy in the blue vehicle was actually looking down at his phone and so did not react in time. And thus we had this accident. So you see how this works, right? There's one incident, one event, but there's different details that are picked up from these different eyewitnesses. And that's how it works in the Gospels. In our series this fall, we're going to hone in on the stories about Jesus that Luke tells in Luke's account. And the first is this one from chapter four, as we get into our text now. Parts of this episode, at least like a brief scene from Nazareth, is recounted in the other Gospels but only very briefly. It doesn't really have this whole story feel like we'll see here. Luke is the one who really unpacks the whole thing and tells it in full. Now, maybe as we read it, as Jeff read for us, you had this deja vu moment like, boy, this sounds familiar. Didn't we study this recently? And we did back on March 1st. That was in the season of Lent. I think it was the first Sunday in Lent. And we had started this series called Jesus Is, where we were looking at the attributes of Jesus. And Mark 4 in this passage was our first text under the title, Jesus is Powerful. Now, what I want to do today is not repeat the things that we talked about back in March, but to focus on the second half of the passage that we didn't get to back then. So back in March, we stopped with verse 21. And what I'm very interested in today is what happens after that, the reaction in Nazareth, which poses a very real question for you and I, a question that you and I have to answer. But first, I do want to set the stage just with a quick recap of what happened now in the first part of the story on our way in that direction. For the first time since growing up there and working alongside his dad in the carpentry shop, Jesus here returns to Nazareth to teach, and to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And you can imagine, I mean, the place is just abuzz that morning because this hometown kid has now taken the pulpit. And it says he stood up to read that Sabbath day, and he opens the scroll to Isaiah. He goes to chapter 61, and he reads what will be a statement of his identity and a preview of his ministry. So Jesus reads from Isaiah, and we see the words here in Luke 4.18, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61 is all about the year of the Lord's favor. If we were to flip back to Isaiah 61, we'd see that heading. 
this is the year of Jubilee that's described here, a significant event that was celebrated every 50th year in Israel. It was a year that was meant to foreshadow the day when God would come and pour out his grace and set everything right. And this passage was meant to foretell of the Messiah who God would send to do it. So in reading this, Jesus picks one of the people's favorite passages about the Messiah, about the Savior, and he reads it, rolls up the scroll, and sits down, which we always have to remind ourselves does not mean he was done, but actually sitting down was the posture of a teacher. And so he is about to preach, to speak now on this passage. And it says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, were fixed on him. You could have heard a pin drop in the synagogue. And in verse 21, where we ended last time back in March, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And what he's saying there is, this is me. I am the Messiah you have been waiting for the Redeemer of Israel, the Savior of Isaiah 61, the promised one of God, the wait is over. This is the year of the Lord's favor. We've played a lot of games at our house this season, this year. In fact, I'm at our kitchen table here where we have played so many board games over these past months, outside playing yard games, playing card games, whatever we could do because we've been home and we've had less on the calendar. It's really been a wonderful family time. So we have played things like Scrabble, Sleeping Queens, gone out to shoot hoops and played horse, played bags, battleship, apples to apples, five second rule. And if you have a favorite, I would love to know what that is so that we can try it out at our house. But what is one of the things that you hear all the time when you're playing games? We hear this. You're up. It's your turn. Your move. I don't know if that's just my family, if we're exceptionally inattentive when playing board games, but it seems like we spend half the game just telling each other whose turn it is. And that's what happens in a sense in this story. It's now someone else's turn. Jesus just made his move. He declared who he is and what he came for. And now it's their turn. What will the people of Nazareth do? What will be their response? As we look at the text, initially it looks pretty good. You know, it says they spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They love Isaiah 61. It's a favorite Bible verse. And Jesus is clearly a gifted communicator. And he's announced the year of the Lord's favor. But there's a catch, isn't there? There's a catch because they can't quite reconcile the message that they've just heard with the messenger who's given it. And they look at each other and they say, isn't that Joseph's son? They're trying to put this together. They're thinking, shouldn't the Messiah be from some higher pedigree? Not a carpenter's boy from down the street. And isn't it true that we still live in a world where people love to tell God how to do his job? You know, like, well, we like this part, and and that part's a favorite. That's good. And we like this part, but the rest of it, well, let's just disregard that. We can't make sense of that. And we know this personally, too, right? We don't just point a finger at the world around us. 
But we know it can be a hard prayer to say, thy will be done from the Lord's prayer. Not my way, Lord, not my way, but I want to follow your way, even when I don't fully understand the way that my life is going. The people of Nazareth like the Bible verse, they like the speech, but they didn't know if they liked Jesus. And now he's going to call them out on it. He says in verse 23, Surely, you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal thyself. We know from other Greek literature from back in that general time that this was a common saying that they would use. And it essentially means, why don't you prove it? You've said this claim, and now back it up. And Jesus continues in this vein, and he says, you're going to tell me, do hear what we heard you did in Capernaum, which was a town further east on the Sea of Galilee. And then the remarks get really pointed, don't they? Jesus says in verse 24, truly I tell you, in Greek, amen, which you hear our English word, amen. And this is a signal that Jesus uses when he is about to say something very important, like here is the point. So he says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he cites two examples from one of the low points in Israel's history. He says, consider Elijah. Think about Elijah. There were many widows in Israel during those three and a half years of drought and famine. And God sent Elijah to a widow in Zarephath, not in Israel. And you remember that story probably from earlier this summer. That's a town that's over the border, outside the nation of Israel. And then he says, well, how about Elisha, Elijah's successor? There were many lepers in Israel during that time, but none of them were healed except for Naaman the Syrian. I mean, the people hearing this are probably going, the the Syrian. He might as well have said the Samaritan. Now, what is Jesus saying here with these two examples? Out of their own history, they knew their Bibles well. They knew exactly what he was saying. He is drawing a parallel between then and now. In the time of Elijah and Elisha, it was a time of judgment. And that would happen when the people weren't walking with God. It's a very brief little Old Testament lesson here. God had made a covenant relationship with his people, and it had very simple math. If the people stuck with God, who made them and saved them from slavery in Egypt and and taught them how to live, then blessing would follow as they remained faithful to God. On the other hand, if they walked away from him, if they chased after false idols or chased after sin, there would be no blessing. In fact, it would be the opposite. Those were the two scenarios. And the trouble of the Old Testament time is that while God was always faithful to this covenant relationship, the people were hit and miss, and usually miss. So at the time that Jesus is referring to, God sent Elijah and Elisha to let the people know, look, a time of judgment is here. You need to turn back and return to the Lord and return to his blessing. But the people didn't listen. They rejected the prophets. And so God sent the prophets to those who would listen. And in this case, a widowed woman from Phoenicia and a leper from Syria. You want to talk about the wrong pedigree? Those two examples are it. And here is what Jesus is saying. 
he is saying to his own people in Nazareth, he's saying it is very risky to reject a prophet of God. If you reject God's messenger who has come for your benefit, then that rejection will come with a price. And here's the reality. Those closest to Jesus, those closest with access to his message, might actually miss the blessing of God, while those who are far away are ready to receive it. It's a striking message. And I think sobering words for our country. Sobering words. We live in a land where we have access. Praise the Lord that we have a heritage of being able to pursue life with Christ and read our Bibles and worship freely. I mean, we live in a time and a place where we've got multiple Bibles on the shelves and many living rooms. We have multiple churches in our towns and Christian music on our radios, and we can still miss the gospel. We can still reject Jesus. I think one of the most dangerous reactions that a person can have to Christ, and one that we see too many times in our context, in our country, is indifference. Just like a a sigh of boredom, a passing yawn, and then I'm, I'm on with my life. May we and our children feel the awesome weight of what it means to encounter God. I pray that this will be true in our church, at the Y Church, and in the church of Elk River as we all work together in ministry, and true in our city. Because our country cannot endure another generation of bored Christians who check the box, but who do not believe it in their heart. One thing's for sure in the closing verses of this story, as we turn our attention again to the text, the people understood exactly what Jesus was saying. We see their shallow praise at the beginning gives way now to absolute outrage at the end. Jesus didn't mince any words. He said that rejecting him would result in God rejecting them. That's what he's saying. The year of the Lord's favor would go to Syrian lepers and Phoenician widows and anyone who would receive the message of Jesus. That's the gospel, and they didn't want it. The place then erupts in anger. And I want you to just imagine, you know, these stories, we have to try to enter them in in our imagination, in your mind's eye, just how chaotic and violent and scary this scene must have been that erupted from the synagogue. It says they drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built to throw him off. And if you were to visit Nazareth today, and and I hope one day you have an opportunity to visit the Holy Lands, it's on my bucket list one day to get there. But I've looked at the pictures of this. This is a prominent feature in the city called the Mount of Precipice. And it gets its name from this story. They take him up there and they're going to throw him off the cliff. But in a sign of his divine nature, it says that Jesus walked right through the crowd and he went on his way. Very sobering words that finish the story. Because as far as we know, Jesus never returned to Nazareth again. They had made their call, and they had made it clear. And he would take the gospel to those who would hear it.
as we come into the close of the message, I want you to understand that we don't have a three-point sermon today. We don't have a four or five-point or even a two-point sermon, but there is just one thing front and center that stands before us. It's Jesus and his message. God offers to accept all who come to him through Jesus. Through Jesus, there is the year of Jubilee, the year of God's favor. There's complete forgiveness. The opportunity to be fully loved by God when we say yes to Jesus. Because this is where the covenant relationship is now rooted. You know, this hit and miss thing that we were on. We can't fix our broken selves, but God sends his son, Jesus, to live a perfect, sinless life and to die for us on the cross, to perfectly fulfill what God intended for us. And so the blessing of God is available to us in his one and only son that he sent. My friends, the time to decide about Jesus is always now. You don't want to push that decision off another day. You know, like kick it down the curb a little bit longer. Or I'm going to get serious about my faith when I'm older. Or, you know, we're going to start going to church when we start having kids. Because you think that it's something that'll be good for them. But I'm telling you, it is something good for you. And today is the day of salvation. If you have not been crystal clear about that decision and about your relationship with Jesus, now is the time. Now, today. And for those of you who are listening and you made that decision somewhere in your past, do you affirm your faith today? Because that is something that we can do. And maybe you feel like, I'm just, I've kind of gone on autopilot. I've kind of been asleep at the switch here. Today is a day to shake off those spiritual cobwebs and to be fully awake to what God is asking of you, to what he is doing in your life. Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a statement that either takes you to your knees or turns your face in disgust. What it cannot do is leave you with a shrug. So will you accept the offer that he makes? The offer of life. Will you say yes to the year of the Lord's favor? Yes, even 2020. And will you follow the one who proclaims the good news? Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending Jesus to save us. We were so hit and miss. Lord, we have been stuck and lost and hopeless, but you came for us. And your son Jesus stands before us as the most important decision we have to make on this earth. I pray right now, Lord, for those who are weighing that decision of any age, maybe even some of our kids, some of our students, uh, some of us who've kicked this faith thing down the curb for a long, long time. Lord, for those who have sensed an indifference or thought they have had more time, I pray that your spirit would settle this matter in our hearts 
once and for all. Make yourself known to us, Lord. And then would you help us to say yes to your salvation, to life with you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.